You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. ...of the affection and deep regard that Washington and the United States has for your country that we are bringing in every chair we can find in the Institute <laughs> to be with you this morning. My name is Elise Grande. I'm the head of the United States Institute of Peace. We were established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution which is dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We are very pleased, it's an honor, to have the opportunity this morning to focus on the critical issue of the timing of future elections in Ukraine in the midst of Russia's brutal invasion, and also to take the opportunity this morning to discuss how Ukraine can safeguard itself from Russian disinformation tactics that target its democratic institutions. It really is an honor for the Institute to co-host this special event with the International Foundation for Electoral Systems and the National Endowment for Democracy. We are also honored, delighted to be here today with Ambassadors Makrova and Ambassador Bill Taylor to have the board chair of APORA, Dr. Avaskova, Avaskova, and Peter Urban, who is the IFES country director in Ukraine. And we're really honored that the president and CEO of the National Endowment of Democracy, Damon Wilson, will be with us later in the event. It's truly inspiring, I think, for all of us, for the world to witness the unwavering commitment of Ukrainian government leaders as they strive to implement historic electoral and democratic reforms, even as they fight to defend themselves from Russian aggression on the battlefield. The challenges and difficulties of enacting these reforms, which are fundamental to democracy, cannot be underestimated. Although fighting for their lives and the very existence of their country, Ukrainians are so committed to democracy and the democratic way of life, they are reforming their institutions to ensure that it thrives. We hope today that we learn about the challenges that are facing Ukraine and what all of us, international institutions, what America can do to support Ukraine's leaders as they work to strengthen their democracy and create a future in which competitive, fair, and free elections in Ukraine are possible. Ambassador, with your permission, may we invite you to the stage. All of us know that the most distinguished ambassador currently serving in Washington is the ambassador of Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. You, you, you are too kind. Um, first of all, thank you very much to the Institute of Peace, to NED and to IFAS. And not a lot of people know this is where I started my career a long, long, long time ago at oh. IFAS. So uh, to put in together this very timely event. And uh, I will try to be brief and just tell you why I think it's actually very timely and why it's important to talk about it now and what do we think about electoral process, uh, when are we going to have it. I also want to acknowledge before I start my remarks uh, that we have with us Andriana Susak, our veteran and active duty soldier. It's because of her and people like her, men and women who are on the front lines defending our freedom now, 
we can actually be here, discuss it, and, and do what we do. So thank you for your service. Why is it on the 610th day of war we are gathering here to talk about elections? Well, first is because this is what we are fighting for. We are fighting, of course, for our independence. We are fighting for our loved ones, for our homes, for our territory. But we are also fighting for democracy. And we are fighting for the ability uh, to be able to choose who we want to be in the government and to change these people on a regular basis. And this has been at core of Ukraine's fight during the past 32 years. So we had not only worked tirelessly to have free and fair elections in our country, but if you will analyze any revolution that we had, from the revolution on granite, which was for independence, to the orange revolution, which actually happened because our choice was stolen from us. It was not even because of one or another uh, candidate. It was because we knew that this is how we voted and the state tried to steal the choice from us. And actually the revolution of dignity started when again, our choice to join European Union, to choose those values was stolen from us. So it's very much deeply in, 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 ingrained in Ukrainian genes and in our political culture, this craving for not only freedom, but also for democracy. So that, that's why it's important that, you know, we are fighting for democracy, we are the front, front of democracy, and democracy is very important for us. And free and fair elections are very important element of democracy. Now, the second uh, uh, part of remarks is, uh, are we going to have elections now? Because if there was no full-fledged war and we were in situations where we were before 24th of February, uh, we would be just days away from the 29th of October, which would be the date when all Ukrainians would go and vote. But we are in a full-fledged war. And in this war, uh, where not only the war is going on on all territory of Ukraine. The aggressor occupies right now more than 20% of our territory. There is active combat. There are more than uh, roughly a million people in the armed forces uh, in and out. There are more than uh, 12 million of internally and externally displaced people, out of which more than 6 million are still outside of Ukraine. There are so many people that are abducted by Russians, you know, kidnapped, not only our children, but also. So in this situation, uh, can we have the elections? Well, def definitely not if you believe in free and fair elections. Uh, that's why our constitution is very clear on the fact that during the martial law, which is introduced uh, when the full-fledged war is started, the elections are postponed. And we are not the only democracies who are doing it this way. If you will look at the history during the World War II, both France and Great Britain had to postpone the elections until the victory because there is no way you can actually, A, have people campaign and get uh, a fair representation and fair uh, chance at being elected. You cannot provide people safe way to go and elect other people. You cannot provide you know, the, the credibility of the process during the war. That's why the sham referendums that Russia is conducting uh, in 2014 in, in Crimea or in 2022 uh, and 23 at, at uh, some other territories of Ukraine, they are what it is, sham referendums, and it's not an electoral process. But why are we talking about it now? Because as with everything else, 
of course the priority number one is to win and to win the war and that's why you know the priority number one is weapons and financial support to ukraine and more sanctions and isolations to russia but we also are thinking already how to win the peace and that's why we're conducting all the reforms. That's why we're doing the reforms in judicial system and anti-corruption and uh, deregulatory and other economic sector reforms. Because we know that in order to be able to win after we win the war, in order to be able to attract the business to come, in order to be able to be open uh, as, as, as an economy, as a society, for everyone to join forces in rebuilding Ukraine, in order to be able to deliver to our people, we have to do it now. We have to prepare for that. We have to con conduct the reforms now. And the same is true about the election. We cannot rest until we win. So, yes, the elections are going to be when we can ensure the free and fair elections. But we should prepare for it. That's why at the embassy we are doing a lot in updating our um, registries and trying to get in contact with everyone who came here on different programs. And it's, it's the same throughout the embassies, uh, throughout the general consulates. That's why the Electoral Commission and the Parliament is working on whether we need to update the legislation. That's why we need to discuss what do we need to do better? How do we need to restore the process after we win so that when that happens, and we have no doubt that we will win, we are prepared, we are ready, and we will continue as a European democratic country, hopefully soon member of the European Union and NATO. So that's why, again, I want to close with saying thank you for putting all your energy, brains, and efforts into this discussion. Uh, you have a great panel of uh, uh, discussions, and I'm sure you will you will learn a lot and you will enjoy a lot and we will get more people to work on it. Uh, but let's also, if, if I can walk away with one uh, message, is in weapons is what we need for free and fair elections now. It's, it's the most critical need right now in order to be able to win faster. And if we can do that and we can liberate our territories faster, then we can move from discussing on how we will do it to actually doing it in the future. Thank you very much and have a great discussion. So thank you all very much for, uh, for being here with us. Uh, uh, Ambassador McCarver, thank you. Great introduction. You set the stage. Uh, Lise, thank you very much before you head out. This is a great, uh, a great start. And we're looking forward to Damon's remarks at the, at the end here. So, uh, uh, and we're looking forward to having your conversation. Just as the ambassador said, this is an opportunity to talk. The opportunity to ask questions, make your points, you know, argue. Well, this is a good. This is what we do here. Um, you know, we have this kind of discussion, um, and we'd like to have other other points of view. Um, so the ambassador described why we're here: um, elections in a wartime. Um, and so I'm going to. I'm going to. We know what. Peter Urban thinks about elections during wartime. We probably know what Olga thinks about elections during wartime um, because they're in print, they're on record. However, I'm going to turn the tables on them uh, just to start us off. Why are we here? Why are we having this conversation? Um, uh, who says 
we should be having and we should be having that Ukraine should be having elections during wartime. Why is this issue um, on the table? What are the arguments that that people use? Peter, I'm going to start with you. I know what your beliefs are, but put yourself in the position of someone who's saying, you know, there's a democracy. Democracies have elections, so you know what they're arguing. And I, I turn to you first because the international community has this, has made this argument. Olga, I'm going to ask you the same question for, because there are probably a couple of Ukrainians who are you know pushing for uh, elections as well. You could I would like to for you to make those arguments um, uh, in favor of this. So Peter, start us off. Okay, I, I think in favor. It, it, I, we must first look at the fact that it is only a very few that have made these statements. They have made them very loudly, and they have created Who's a making storm. Let's not name them. I think well, we, we all can know. There's I think there we know. We know who, <coughs> who said it. But I, I don't mind saying that Tucker Carlson did spend two of his podcasts on this. There you go. And and laid out his argument for it. But let's just say there are relatively few that have said it, and it's really important that Western. I should say friends of Ukraine have made it crystal clear that they are have no pressure on Ukraine to hold elections or not to hold elections. They have said that Ukraine will hold the elections when conditions are in place for free and fair elections. And that's basically the line by the real official friends of Ukraine. But it doesn't prevent it has not prevented this entire discussion from unfolding. And the reason is that some argue that both parliament up for elections this month, president up for elections in March of next year, needs to be re-legitimized in order for Ukraine to prove that it is still a democracy and that it's not sliding into uh, authoritarian tendency, centralization of power. That's one of the main arguments that we've heard. Another argument has been, admittedly, that next year there's elections in Russia and Putin might be re-elected in what I would also call sham elections and that Zelensky might need to also be re-elected for those two leaders to be held up to each other. I think we can all agree that that's a ludicrous argument but it is another one which is being made for uh, Zelensky to be able to have that uh, renewed and prolonged with five additional years mandate moving forward. So there have been, oh, I'm going to come to you, um, but you're right, there have been people who have shown up in Kyiv, um, have had meetings with the president, have come out, and, and these, I will say, because they're in Kyiv, um, they're, they're supporters. They're mm -hmm. supporters. I mean, they want Ukraine to win, just yeah. as the ambassador said. Um, and they're convinced they will, and they're going to help get the weapons that the ambassador's talking about. So they're, I'm talking about senior U.S. government officials from the Senate. Let's just be clear. One. One. And, um, and so what's his argument? What is, what is he, um, why did he come out and, you know, you're not in his head, but why, why would someone come out and say that, that kind of, make that suggestion? Well, he basically said that Ukraine, to prove that it's a democracy, needs to have its elections, even if during wartime. That was the statement he made it twice. But again, I, I do think that if you look at this in a more nuanced manner, the statement is correct insofar that Ukraine must have its elections. The ambassador said so herself. But for those to be legitimate elections with credible outcomes, there needs to be different conditions than we see right now. And I think, in fact, it was uh, impressive how the ambassador laid out the issue and pointed out the reasons why elections uh, in the current state of war 
is very, very difficult. We're going to come to those. We're going to come to those arguments. So we're going to, I'm sure we're going to get to those. Oh, so Ukrainians. Uh, there are a couple of Ukrainians. I've talked, you've talked to them. Several people in this room have talked to them that say, you know, yeah, we should have elections um, uh, sometime soon. And they make the same argument that, that Peter just made that is, uh, you know, we're a democracy. Um, we have uh, elections to, to choose our leaders. Mm -hmm. What from, again, making the, this is not your case, I understand. But making their case, how do they, how do they make the case that we should be talking about this way? So, first of all, I know names of Europeans and Americans yep. who promoted the idea to have elections during wartime. But I can name leaders of Ukraine, and when we speak in opposition, civil society or ruling party, which support in publicly for having elections yep. during wartime. And this is unique. Uh, moment for Ukraine because there is consensus between society and politicians from different camps uh, do not have elections but uh, working on the preparation because opposition looking for opportunities they will not have any resultive process for them if elections will have during half a year because it will not be competitive they will not be ready to participate the same or not the same story for president because he may have profit uh, benefits from early elections next year because his rating is very high. But what about Parliament? Parliament is under the uh, uh, the um, uh, so is defended by Ukrainian constitution for sure. Do not have any elections during wartime, and that's why president as a leader doesn't need to have re-election just for himself. He need big uh, group of politicians which will support in him in parliament. So in t uh, it will not be very useful for him personally too. And civil society is on the side of the details. Devil is always in details. When in we are speaking about formal voting, of course, Russia had and will have elections. Belarus had and will have something like elections. But we don't think that they are democracies here. Yeah? And that's why voting is not about democracy. That's why civil society don't want to use double standards during wartime for having free and fair elections. We need free and fair. We don't need just elections, just voting process as USSR had. And that's why we are working on agenda. How we can promote and support democracy without formal voting, even during wartime, because we have a power. And there are many NGOs representatives, and um, Adriana here. And she was a civilian many years ago, but now she is servant to her country. And such people as she is needs to participate, not just for formal voting process. Maybe she will be political actor very soon. Maybe she wants to uh, promote uh, the security and agenda for defense system in Ukraine. And this audience in parliament, why she can participate as a candidate? Because she has another priorities now. She needs to serve her country to defend the territories. That's why my short answer uh, after all of these uh, sentences, we have unique moment with consensus between separate groups which are thinking how to build democracy during wartime and how to have free and fair elections when it will be possible. Oh, thank you. That was a, a great, great response and a good introduction. Let me uh, recognize again and, and ask uh, Adriana, uh, Sister Arakta, um, to 
you've been introduced twice now, Adriana. Senior sergeant serving in the in the Ukrainian military, uh, joined in like 2014, uh, uh, wounded last year. Um, amazing. Yeah. I won't go into the details, uh, but Adrian, we're very pleased to have you here. Honored to have you. And you please, please. There you go, Richard. Thank you. Um, I will say. Please. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Andriana Rechta. Let me introduce myself. Uh, I. Uh, I was not born for war, and uh, I was not dreaming about military career, but in 2014, when uh, Russia um, invaded Crimea and uh, uh, occupied uh, Donbass, uh, uh, we uh, were just the activists on revolution of dignity, and we were fighting like we were fighting on revolution of dignity for freedom, democracy, um, like for future of Ukraine. And uh, all the activists, uh, almost all the activists from Revolutionary Dignity, we uh, joined the armed forces of Ukraine on that period of time. And uh, we were like moving to Luhansk and Donetsk region. And, you know, it's, um, we were talking, uh, we are talking now about democracy, but uh, about, about voting. And my first experience uh, mm, of voting uh, on the front line was in 2014 uh, uh, when the election, the presidential election was uh, uh, on 25th of, of May. We captured uh, 13 uh, Russian guys with a uh, gun. Uh, they were just moving to the polling station and uh, beat people and take uh, the bills. And uh, it was like our first operation of uh, civilians, military civilians on that period of time. And it it was very interesting because on that uh, presidential election, uh, the activists who were fighting for democracy and uh, best future for Ukraine were on the front line after revolution, and we are, were not voting on that period of time, but other people uh, have. Uh, now, uh, 2022 um, changed also the same situation. Uh, all the public speakers, almost all the public speakers, uh, civilians, like active uh, activists, uh, are now mobilized to armed forces of Ukraine, and uh, um, and two days ago here in the United States, States I read uh, principles before politics. Our principles of armed forces of Ukraine is to save democracy, uh, to protect democracy, uh, to make uh, democracy lives in Ukraine, and then to make the chance to uh, bloom in and like uh, to have a future for democracy in Ukraine. And uh, now uh, the situation on the front line is uh, very hard because uh, the, like the first line is uh, burnt, uh, um, heated, uh, uh, Russians heated uh, uh, not only uh, uh, military, uh, like the first line of uh, fighting, but also civilians uh, building uh, hospitals and others. And I can't even imagine uh, how uh, we can uh, vote uh, on the front line and how civilians can vote on the front, front line. Now, uh, activists are on the front line. Their families are refugees in different countries. And uh, these civilians uh, will not gather for voting because they are afraid. Because Russia uses cruise missiles to hit uh, uh, the 
the like the houses or the places where people gathering we saw this uh, um, just a few weeks ago in Hrozne in Kharkiv where they uh, uh, hit it uh, uh, where the funeral was and it was like every uh, third person of the of the village uh, yes we can speak about di digitalization but you know uh, like uh, internet or Elon Musk, uh, they gave us uh, this darling, they are not working on the first line of front line because it's forbidden territory for um, for uh, Starlink and we are without internet and without connection. Uh, we um, like military today in ukraine the highest rank of uh, hopeness of civilians are for military forces in ukraine and uh, uh, if uh, military will not have a chance to vote because military are fighting for democracy then uh, what's the meaning of democracy in ukraine is and military are activists, military are going to uh, fight not only on the front line, but other in advocacy campaign, in uh, reform sector and others. As before 2022, after demobilization um, in 2014, I became an activist in uh, Ukraine. I uh, became a chairwoman of Ukrainian Women Veterans Movement. Uh, we changed legislation giving an opportunity for women to for equal rights in military service. We uh, also were in the peace building processes in 2018, it was the first time when I've met with women from occupied territory in Turkey. And we were talking about peace, about democracy, and they, I can say that occupied territory, it's not about democracy, it's not about freedom, and it's not about the chance given even to spoke about principles of life, rule of law, or something that democracy deals with. That's why um, I'm asking like, to um, support us in fighting for democracy now. And then we will uh, give a chance for democracy to live in Ukraine. And uh, you gave a chance for us, for activists who are now dying for this democracy, just to be the part of this democracy. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sergeant Sisak, thank you. Thank you very much. You've, you've given us a lot of those arguments that we were going to come back to. Peter wanted to say something right away after oh, this. Please, go ahead, Peter. First and foremost, I want to thank you for your service because you and your fellow soldiers protect us living in Kiev and see to that we can do what we do. It didn't happen without the soldiers. But I also think it's immensely important to look at this from the military's and from the soldiers' point of view. I mean, I think we can all agree it's a slight insult to the army and to the soldiers that some may argue that Ukraine is no longer a democracy, while at the same time thousands of soldiers are dying all the time in 
defense of that very democracy for that very freedom. And, I, and, and, and that's actually something that saddens me in this whole dialogue, that there is this question that some question Ukraine's commitment to democracy, because I think that is what soldiers are dying for. But I also think it is very important to remember that for wars to be fought effectively, there needs to be unity in the rear, as you would say as soldiers. And one big issue with holding elections and electoral processes is it is incredibly messy in all democracies. It, it means that politicians turn their attention to w win their campaign, to, to win their seats, to do political campaigning. It, will, it interrupts good governance, it interrupts service delivery and so forth. So I actually think that from the military and the soldier's point of view, it's a reasonable request that there is quiet in the rear and that there is unity and support for the fight that happens on the front line. I would think that if there was parliamentary and or presidential elections, this would be a very, very difficult period also for the soldiers who needs the rest of the population to be united uh, behind them. So I think this is an important argument and in fact we owe that to you and to other soldiers in Ukraine. Peter, let, let me just echo your thanks to um, Adriana and all the soldiers that are out there defending not just those people living in, like you, like you both living in Kyiv, not just the rest of Ukraine, but Europe, but the United States. So you are, as you've pointed out, you are fighting for your communities, yourselves, your families, your existence, um, but you're, you're fighting for our security as well. So we, we owe you, we owe you. We have a big, a big debt. Um, you've, made, you've made, on Peter's point about uh, elections, and Peter knows something about elections, so I've worked with Peter Urban in many difficult situations, not just in Ukraine. Uh, I think we may have met in Afghanistan, and he's run elections in Iraq, and so he knows about elections, and his point about elections being, by definition, divisive. Um, that's, you know, there's one side and there's another side, or several sides, um, and they argue against each other, and they point out problems. And the important thing that the ambassador led off with, the first priority is winning the war. And to win the war, unit, we need, we, the, the, the international community, Ukrainians need unity. No, that's exactly right. Um, okay, you've made this point as well. Any thoughts on, so we have two people who know a lot about elections and democracy. You've observed a lot of elections on this thing. Thoughts on this question of unity that, uh, that both Adriana and, and Peter raised? So I uh, observed the election with Opora, and Opora uh, observed with me, and uh, you know, uh, we are a big team uh, in Ukraine uh, from 2006. Uh, that's why I remember how election looked like after Orange Revolution, because I was an activist on those days, student, and I fighted for democracy on the uh, Maidan. And then I became a member of election commission. That's why I know from the ground how the process looked like before all reforms, uh, uh, international support, plan of re that realization, and so on and so forth. I remember the days when it uh, wasn't important what society think about uh, political agenda, about political actors, and so on and so forth, because it can be uh, like a devil's agreement be between authorities, president, his administration, militia, uh, which is police now and so on and everything uh, was happening according to their plan except one when people came to the street nobody could stop that because if you have million of people which fighting for free and fair elections not for money not for social payments for free and fair elections and they staying there for months and months during very cold winter in ukraine 
we have minus 20 uh, degrees by Celsius sometimes in uh, Kiev. So it means something. And why the plan of uh, Leonid Kuchma, the second president of Ukraine, or Yanukovych, didn't realize in reality because there is a society. So there is a society with strong um, already a body uh, which has understanding how to, to deal with those who wants to use uh, you know, formal process for their needs. Uh, who have money, like oligarchs, for paying to, uh, to increase capacity of political groups and political parties and just to take a power. But there is a nation, it's named Ukrainians, it doesn't matter what ethnic groups we are representative, but it's Ukrainian which fighting for democracy and fight it not once. And uh, when you are asking how the process may look like in the future, first of all, we want to have very honest uh, talk with our partners. Many of those who did the statements that Ukraine needs to have elections were not on detail. They truly wanted to support us. And even Lindsey Graham, which visited Ukraine with that statement, he's a good friend of Ukraine, mm -hmm. I believe that. I believe that he voted for Ukrainian needs for uh, aid and so on and so forth. He is a good friend of Ukraine, but he reacted on some other uh, issues like how to stop support Ukraine. Why not blame Ukraine that it's not democracy anymore? Why not use this topic <coughs> again that? And uh, I'm representative of civil society group. I'm not representing all society. And we gather in more than 200 NGOs, entities, who had uh, some internal dialogue. What is our list of argues? Why we need to uh, be honest with the friends which want to support Ukraine, but sometimes moving a step back from their reality. So, and the first argue why we uh, presented the statement from civil society, I believe it was powerful, that you know, when you don't have any predictability about security and nobody can guarantee that these territories or that territories or that polling station will be under the uh, security guarantees, who can start the process? If you don't know how to the end of the process you can start because you waste time, money, lives, and at the end you will delegitimize branches of the power which still in their offices, so-called new elected groups, because the level, uh, the level of turnout will be very low. If Russia will organize full-scale attack, ballistic attack against Ukraine during uh, one day, turnout will be 5-10% for sure. We try to organize uh, event round table in Sume, oblast center, very close to the border, and the problem is then when alarm is happening, it means that everything done, because it's so close to the border that, first of all, rockets are targeting buildings as civilian infrastructure, and then alarm is ongoing. So what about that? What about people's life? Adriana mentioned that village, 30% of members of community were killed by one rocket, which was targeted to this building because those <coughs> relatives with Russian uh, special groups knew that, that people will have a meeting there. So it's about security and if everything like that is unpredictable and you may have 5% of turnout, 
just imagine what will be the level of legitimacy of this process and the uh, result of the process. So this is the first uh, question about security and we need to be adult. We can be a child that everything may happen in a worst scenario, according to the worst scenario. So the second question is uh, about legislation. So unfortunately, we are not ready. We have a great developed electoral court, not perfect, but we worked very hard on it for 10 years. I'm a very old person. I remember each of the meeting of this. Um, I, okay, I'll be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> according to uh, official dictionary, uh, working groups. It, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meetings before parliament voted for it. And we have electoral court. But good luck, you can't organize uh, during war time or post-war election according to civilian legislation. Because first of all, you have to think how to develop process with all, uh, with all protocols about security first, then how to emerge the process if something will happen according to the worst scenario. But for post-war elections, we need to change everything because we have so many people abroad. We have so many internally displaced people. We have million, million of soldiers now which are serving. My husband is there, his brother is there. So it, it's, it's very difficult to accept that we have to think about soldiers not first of all, but in between, because it's a part of our lead. And according to Opora's analysis, we have not six million of uh, Ukrainians abroad, unfortunately. More, seven uh, million, almost uh, 200,000. We are working not only with officials like border uh, services and so on, or UN, which use their own methodology, but it's not valid too much. So it's not real. Uh, we used sometimes so-called private uh, companies' data, like banking, like mobile operators, and so on. And they have a special formula. It's big data. You can analyze how many people left Ukraine till this lunch. You know, on a daily basis, we have this access to this uh, data. And what we see is that we have more than 7 million people abroad. They are very mobile, super mobile. And without prognosing about migration, you can't understand how to be with the procedures about voting. But first of all, about campaigning. Because if three months ago, Poland was the first state which accepted the biggest number of Ukrainian refugees, now it's Germany. So Germany needs to be a leader in Europe for, having, for hosting election if we want to have uh, Ukraine in the future a member of EU, EU countries has to host us. Sorry, but it's a reality because we need these people back home through their bridges with political process. If they will not have a power now to vote for their representatives in parliament in the future, so believe me, they will live where they are. And we did uh, surveys in eight countries, and we asked how many people want to participate. More than 80% wants to participate in political process from abroad. What does it mean? That they want to stay Ukrainians, 
they want to be a part of political process and I'm proud of that we need to form the right uh, you know uh, practices for that at legislation so Ola, let me let me just um, follow up on a couple of things that you said you had a lot of good good arguments there it's not and all I know it's not <laughs> and we're going to come to those you will have an opportunity and uh, people in this room will have an opportunity to, to push you as well um, but you, you, uh, I start off asking you kind of what do what do Ukrainians think and you described a couple you described this letter that uh, that non-governmental organizations civil society put together some I don't know 300 organizations more than two more, more than two it's, it's a lot a lot, a lot. <laughs> and they made the case the cases that, that you just made let's let's follow up on one and ask Peter um, about this question that oh you just raised Peter on refugees mm -hmm. uh, there are there's six or seven million Ukrainians more abroad is that right six or yeah. seven yeah. more than seven more than seven um, and they are in Poland and now even more in Germany as Olga just pointed out you've done elections and this is not the first time you've had to, to think about uh, uh, refugees or or people citizens of one country outside of that country trying to vote mm. is can it be done people talked about you know can you vote online can you can you mail in votes you know we were starting to do What's, what are the challenges there, Peter, and can they be overcome? So let me first say that uh, this forum, because we, all want, we also want to leave a little bit of space for questions. We do. We won't be able to go through the entire arguments that there is on uh, wartime elections, but we're very fortunate that we have actually shared with you in print the very good statement by Olga and 200 NGOs expressing this resistance against wartime elections. I'd also like to add to that just quickly that there has been nine surveys now where the public has in representative samples been asked whether they want elections during war and 65 to 80 percent have clearly answered they cannot see elections happen during war and we only have five to ten percent saying that elections should happen and I think some should listen to the Ukrainian public in this regard also. So civil society and the Ukrainian public are absolutely united against the holding of elections during war because they simply can't imagine that elections would take place at the same time as missiles and drones are flying over the country. But the case in that is well laid out in the statement and it is available to all of you. Now the important part is now if there weren't elections during war then what needs to happen for Ukraine to further fortify its democracy? And I say further because questioning Ukraine's commitment to democracy is semi-ludicrous. Since 2014 and all the way to the war started, we have seen an ever stronger democracy. We have seen ever better elections all the way up to 2020. And all observer reports recognize that the elections have been improved for every time there was one. In fact, Ukraine can pride itself with the fact that it handed over power from one president to another without any challenge. Nobody blamed the machines or said the results were fraudulent. Or there was a peaceful transfer of power from one president to the other after a very competitive election. Same for parliament. Ukraine should be proud of that and we should recognize it. Now, during the war, it is very difficult to continue all the democratic processes we normally have. This is why martial law exists, just like it exists in all of us, our countries. And martial law dictates some restrictions that make it able for the nation united to fight the war. There are some restrictions on political processes. There are some restrictions 
uh, on media, and this is only natural, as it was pointed out, happened in other countries also. I was glad the ambassador took up uh, that argument. So this is happening. But even during the war, Ukraine is still a thriving democracy. There are still democratic processes that look after things. Take, for example, the individual asset declaration, a very bad decision by parliament not to disclose the individual asset declaration during the war. What happened? A huge upheaval in society, an immediate signature collection, 85,000 signatures within a week, forcing the president to review the decision that the parliament had taken and the president helped overturn that decision and today there is transparency around individual asset declarations. The same happened with uh, financial reporting of political parties. The political parties somewhat, um, should we say, resisted restarting transparent political reporting of their finances. Huge upheaval, lots of pressure, international French pressures inside Ukraine society. Today you can go online and you can see the finances of political parties on the online system that, by the way, IFAS has helped establish together with the Ukrainian institutions. It's there. There are very healthy democratic processes in place. However, there are still needs and you will see the Ukrainian public. Uh, there was a, a survey um, yesterday where the dissatisfaction among in the Ukrainian public on the speed of reform is expressed. 70 something percent said reform wasn't happening fast enough. I'm not surprised. Reform is happening. It could be faster. And we, as we say in our roadmap, feel that the electoral reform preparing for the eventual elections that must happen has somewhat stalled. So part of our advocacy that Olga and I are here for is to tell everyone, also Ukrainians, through every mechanism available that we must restart electoral reform. There are many things that can be done now and the most important one is the one you asked me about, namely enfranchising all of those that are most affected by this war to vote. That includes the six to seven million uh, Ukrainians abroad. It includes millions of Ukrainians that are uh, displaced in, inside Ukraine. It includes soldiers that we would also like to have a possibility to both run as candidates and to vote. Now, we have run elections for very large groups of people abroad, most notably maybe after the Iraq war. The international community helped Iraq see to that its very large refugee body had access to vote. Um, the International Foundation for Election System that I represent was called upon to lead this process. I directed it and we held elections in 14 countries around the world within 72 days, so a very narrow window of preparation. It is absolutely possible. In fact, there were polling stations for Iraqis all over the United States. And there were polling stations for Iraqis all over Iran and United Arab Emirates and Syria and Denmark and Sweden and many countries throughout the world. And that election took place and it worked well. But the legislation is not ready in Ukraine to do this. There has been no progress on considering how should we hold elections for the people abroad. Currently the legislation only allows for voting on election day in diplomatic representations and obviously we can all see that those that are in Poland will not fit into the few places, four places in Poland that currently are uh, allowed to hold these elections. Olga has calculated that we need 400 polling stations throughout Poland and thousands of polling stations throughout Europe and the United States. That needs to be legislated. IFAS has done a very thorough study of um, out-of-country voting for Ukraine. What are the problems? What are the challenges? Where are people? What methodologies might be available to allow these people to vote? We have made recommendations, but we have not told Ukraine, as we shouldn't, 
which of these recommendations to take. We need Ukrainian elites to refocus, restart electoral reform, and answer a range of issues, including the biggest of all, how we make people that are displaced vote. This is also why Olga and I, last week, in preparation for this visit, released our joint roadmap, which lays it out very clearly what are the main things that need to happen for Ukraine to prepare for the best possible elections when conditions allow. And these should be elections, the ambassador said it well, that are least disruptive of the fundamental rebuilding of Ukraine that must take place. Elections in the middle of rebuilding a country after war is a very, very difficult thing to do. So we need to prepare well. So what we call upon uh, Ukrainian elites to do is to restart and work hard on getting ready for these elections through electoral reform, including legislation that allows for Ukraine to vote all over the world. Thank you both. Um, so um, one last question for me and then, and then to, the, to the people in this room who've got questions about, uh, about, about these elections. Um, some, of the some of the arguments um, are that, well, in the United States during World War II, you, know, this is, you knew this was coming, mm -hmm. um, you know, we had elections. We had elections. Um, now, they don't say, but um, we, we can recognize that in Europe, they didn't have elections during World War II because that's where the fighting was. Now, that's probably part of the answer. But what, what do you say, Olga and, and Peter, both, you may both have uh, views on this when they say, well, the Americans had elections during World War II. Why don't you, why don't you have them in Ukraine? World, world, uh, world II happened many, many decades ago. So, and we have more challenges that we had before. It's about soft power, it's about cyberspace, it's about physical uh, insecurity and so on. But sorry, you didn't have rockets and ballistic attacks here in the US. That's why it's not the case at all. Even in UK, it was like a political consensus, do not re-elect all parliament. And they had the same parliament for 10 years. I don't want to have parliament, the same parliament for 10 years, but I have to serve my democracy to have their realistic, uh, active political process when parliament will play a role, not will be just a puppet of some, someone without any capacity to build democracy in Ukraine, to promote programs uh, and so, uh, solving the issues with post-war uh, Ukraine and I don't want to have uncompetitive presidential election because president will win for 100% if elections will happen next year because of high level of support him personally because of unity of nation and so on but it doesn't mean that it, it's a good scenario because I believe that through political competition he will have a right to use this mandate during next five years. Without political competition, he will take all responsibility about win-win story, about losing the territories, about losing the lives. And then people have to say, are we going to give him f uh, more five years in office or not? So if elections will, presidential elections will happen next year, we will have the same president for 100%. And I'm not sure that it's about debates, discussions, democracy, and so on. That's why what's happening in Iraq, Afghanistan, are very important as a cases. 
but Ukraine became electoral democracy with the same level of the capability as very well developed EU countries. According to the economist ratings, Ukraine has a higher score than Poland, Hungary, and many other EU, not many, but some other EU uh, states. So what we had is a strong position in Ukraine, comparably to a rule of law issue, that we had political competition when nobody uh, has all power because they knew that people will be active for sure. When Kuchma Yanukovych wanted to stolen the right of people to have influence, because elections is about influence, it's not about ballots. Let's be honest. When they tried to stolen this right to manage the story, to manage the country, people came to the street. And I believe such, such pers personalities as Adriana, we have millions like her. So she, she may be die a few months ago. She has uh, her uh, health issue now, but she was uh, participating in liberation on Kharkivska Oblast when all of us, all of our partners were happy that Ukraine liberated huge territories during days. Absolutely. Now right. it's Absolutely. A, so we have to understand. Yeah. Let's try to use that cases which relevant to our situation and 21st century. Exactly. Uh, uh, Peter, anything to add on that? Then, no, and and then as soon as you finish, then we'll go to the... Let me yield to the audience. It'll yield to the audience. Okay, very good. All right. Um, questions for Olga, for Peter. Yes, ma'am. So introduce yourselves, Ed, uh, address it to one of the other, and we'll go from there. Do you want uh, a mic? Yes. Thank you, Ellie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Dr. Irene Gonzalez. I am a CEO from CIFAI. And my question is the following. Based on media, reputable media such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, I, they are reporting recently that there is a group on the military with people that are from the ultra-right that now they are joining Ukrainian forces, military forces, to help in the war. My question is, this is very important because this is the ultra-right, you know, it's when there is a extremism in the type of politics and so on. So how, if there are elections, they are helping with the war. So are they going to be excluded? Are they going to be part of that? Or is this is a way for them to push into their, also their political thinking by helping in the war? Uh, it, it's kind of... It's a, it's a good question. It's a good question. Please. I have that? an answer because yeah. I'm listening to this question from 2014. It's not new. Uh, and uh, it was used by Russian propaganda many times that Ukraine is n nationalist uh, society, we have so fascist. strong support, fascists, we have so strong support of uh, far-right groups and so on. Uh, in 2014, when we had Revolution of Dignity, football fans, you know that mostly football fa fans has this far-right position, uh, supported Ukrainian protest. And there were <coughs> so-called uh, far uh, right sector group 
which Russians used against Ukraine that this group is so powerful. Uh, they will take all parliament, uh, all seats in parliament, and they, that's why Ukraine is uh, moving to this direction. Sorry, you know how many uh, seats they had? None. And they had support only uh, less than 2% of Ukrainian voters in 2014 when we had parliamentary and presidential election. And their leader didn't have any opportunity to, to be on this high, part, high level part of the rating. So that's why each country has far right, far left, and others. And it's okay if they are not having uh, they are not using uh, their guns, uh, I don't know, uh, and other things, uh, tools for taking uh, power. It's not about coup. We will not have like that for sure. And these far-right groups are everywhere. And around Europe. Around, around Europe. Europe, exactly. And many European nations, uh, you know, Peter, you can speak this better than I, have much higher than 2%. Yes. I actually think that, you know, again, democracy will take care of this. This is the wonderful thing about democracy. I, I don't think that the far right has a very uh, significant stronghold in, Euro in Ukraine, far less than in some other uh, nations within the European Union itself. And I, I think that Ukraine will be perfectly able to handle that. It is true that uh, a lot of people that may have future political ambitions are now um, associating themselves with the army because clearly army credentials is going to be part of the political campaigns that we see in the future. Um, so there is that association and the far right is not alone. I mean, a lot of people are, are joining the army now for all the right reasons and it will certainly be a very strong part of any campaign that they may lead in the future and that's good for them. I mean, I have no issue with that at all. Uh, of course, many Ukrainians are looking at some of the current army leadership and asking themselves, you know, once this war is over, might they retire and consider a life in politics? They have not said so, but this is something that's part of the discourse. But that's all a good thing, as long as it happens in a legal <coughs> manner. And a very important part of that when it comes to the army is, of course, that the army can only participate so much in under the legal framework that Ukraine has, which is vanilla and similar to the legal frameworks we have. We want the generals to focus on winning the war now. Which they, they are. They which, they are. which they are. Which they are. And absolutely are. And then politics can come thereafter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay, I'm going to go to this side here and uh, coming uh, come back. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Sandra and I'm part of the learning evaluation and research team here at USIP. Uh, I'm very convinced by the argument that to uh, re-legitimize in times of conflict, in times of war, is to really delegitimize because you can't have a free and fair election. However, I'd like to ask a question to help you kind of think through the future. I'm hoping, of course, for the conflict not to continue any longer. But in case it does, at what point does democracy erode? So I'm thinking about the case of South Sudan, which is nowhere near where the, uh, um, Ukraine's democracy is. I would say South Sudan is more of a kleptocracy than anything else. But we've been postponing elections because of conflict, because of the civil war. Um, and I think the, the fact that we've been postponing has helped political leaders to, 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 to try to, to buy support in ways that will ensure down the line that we probably will not have free and fair elections. So what is Ukraine doing to ensure that the longer the conflict continues, you're not also um, eroding uh, electoral institutions and creating environment where people might want to hold on to power? It's a great, it's a great question. Peter, uh, do you want to start? 
so we actually discussed this extensively in our meetings yesterday. Obviously, all of us hope for a quick victory, which will somewhat solve this issue. But the possibility for a long war is certainly there. And if there is a long war, there comes a point where you have to ask yourself, are these institutions still legitimate? I, I personally believe it's going to be very difficult for the war to continue at its current uh, significant intensity. And I think that if we have a long war, the absolutely most likely scenario is that it will level off and will move more towards a low-level uh, conflict uh, in years to come. I believe that there will come a time when the environment is more conducive for the holding of an election. And I also believe that if we now prepare as well as possible for all the different mechanisms that are needed for elections during uh, some level of low-level conflict, then we'd be in a much better position. It's worthwhile remembering that from 2014 and until the start of this current uh, war, there was still a conflict in Ukraine. In eastern Ukraine, uh, there was a low-level conflict and elections could still be held. So I do believe, again, if we get on with electoral reform now, we prepare well, we know how Ukraine can vote around the world, we deal with some of the issues of, for example, voting for soldiers and so forth. When this war levels off, and if it's a long war, then certainly we should continuously consider when is the time to have an election, when can we have an election that will lead to credible outcomes. Ola. So I have to add that uh, it's a good time for having reforms, for sure. More than 86% of Ukrainians wants to be a member of EU, wants to see Ukraine as a member of EU. And this type of roadmaps or opening the negotiation, which will happen, I hope so, in December, will help us to do reform even during wartime. And let's talk honestly that we need influence, we need safe uh, and defense influence of society. Uh, we need developed judicial system for sure because it's about everything. It's about how to uh, how to manage the state according to constitution, even during martial law period, without any misusing of this source of uh, power. And we have to speak about freedom of speech, about human rights, but opening the negotiation for Ukraine about membership in EU is a very strong tool because none in Ukraine will step back when we are speaking about society, about this part of the future of Ukraine. We did a survey, I have to name three points which are not negotiable at all from the side of civil society if we will have so-called uh, peace talks with Russia. And one point, it's about EU membership. The second, it's about NATO membership. The third, it's about territories. So the total majority, more than 96% of Ukrainians said openly, we not ready to have compromises, but sometimes uh, state has to do step back, for example, to exchange the uh, soldiers in between sides or having military, uh, having uh, humanitarian corridors for civilians and so on. So it's negotiable. But there are three topics which are not negotiable. So if we will, if we have already so strong tools for having Ukraine uh, in, um, uh, in so-called Copenhagen standards and principles. A framework it's already working on our side 
And we are asking, except judicial reform, anti-corruption reform, and other type of uh, topics which has to be developed according to Copenhagen's document, we have to highlight that we need to recover media during wartime. Because it's not just about freedom of speech, it's about capitalization of the capacity of media, journalists, people, uh, to have diverse positions sometimes, but very pro-Ukrainian and very pro-Western uh, position, which we see from the regular life of people on a daily basis in Ukraine. There is no anything like insecurity if people will watch a not, not telemarathon, which we have now, which are very, very expensive, which are paying through the taxpayers' money of the US and EU because you are helping us with financial aid. That's why telemarathon somehow paying through this money too. Let's step back from this practice, it's bad practice. Let's focus on public broadcasting TV, which already was developed, and we need to use these opportunities of wartime to increase capacity of public broadcasting in Ukraine. Very good. You, you always get a lot of good things in there. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. In addition to a good question. <laughs> and I was very interested in that survey. So no compromise on EU, no compromise on NATO, no compromise on territory. Something yeah. depends on you. It does depend on us. We need to, we need to help with it. So I'm going to go to this side and then back to this side. Sir. And Ellie, the next one will be over here. <coughs> Larry Garber, uh, independent consultant. Um, so uh, three points. Uh, first, I've made privately to Peter. But I'll repeat here, the, the US relevant example is not World War II, but is our Civil War, where which was on US territory. And we did hold elections both in 1862 and in 1864. And we held elections in which today we all assume that Lincoln won and it was uh, preordained. Pre it wasn't preordained. Lincoln himself had doubts whether he would win that election. So just as a historical example, it's worth reflecting on that, and particularly if you're talking to American audiences who do have some historical memory, not just back to World War II, but even back to the Maybe not 19th. as much as you do, but, that, <laughs> but, but there is that. That's a good point. Um, second is, I think, in some ways, again, in terms of a response to, to the discussion, you know, Peter and Olga and you know, others uh, in the IFAS community and broader have been a victim of their success because the, the, the reflection is that we did hold elections, or elections were held in war times uh, recently, so in the 21st century, and Afghanistan and Iraq are, are used. And again, we may have created a, you know, a, a beast that we don't, no longer control, but, but again, that has to be responded to, and I think you, you did a, a good job of distinguishing uh, between uh, Ukraine and Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and many of us have doubts whether those elections were worth holding in retrospect, uh, given, given the circumstances under which they were taken. But again, that's part of the, the, the public conscience. So, so again, just to keep that in mind in the conversation. The third point is I get a little concerned when you talk about unity of purpose. And I understand that concept in the in military reality. But, but there also is the question of, and, and the last question I think got to it, is when you give the population, including the people who are on the front lines, the opportunity to voice their views on you know, whether you know, we've accomplished our goals, whether we should make some compromises, and, and how do we know what, when that time is right? 
And, and I don't think there's a precise answer to it, but I don't think it's, it's basically just saying we need unity of purpose as a way to say we, we can't have elections. And I think Peter was getting to it a little bit when you know, we talked about the difference between the type of war that's being fought now and maybe what would be a long war. Um, but I think we need to have specific conditions for when we would say, you know, yes, this is transformed from uh, a context in which we don't uh, think elections are wise to a time when, you know, elections are, are maybe necessary. Larry, thank even, you. Even Three very thoughtful points. Um, any comments? Why don't we you, you want to take, take no, more thank you, Larry. We'll hang on to those. Those are very good. Good. Yes, ma'am. Right. Thank you, Kurtika. Kurtika's got the mic for you. Hi. Hang Eva, on to those points. Very good points, though. Very <coughs> thanks. Eva Busha, Regional Director for Eurasia at NDI. Peter Anoha, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for the hard work you're doing. Thank you for the, all the analysis. And I wonder if you could take us through, you know, I've been going to conferences recently, OGP in Tallinn and around town. And one of the things that people are arguing is that um, electronic voting, like particularly the potential of the DIA app for addressing some of the security concerns and also um, some of the issues around the logistics. Could you take us through the reasons why this is not a good idea and this is not a solution? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, and so why don't we do both of those, both, any comments on, on Larry Garber and, and this question about, yeah, Peter. So uh, as to Larry's last point, uh, as I've said, if this is a long war, there's gonna come a point where we need to look at what is possible. But certainly, uh, we need to get on with the electoral reforms that will build the basis for the holding of elections under more difficult circumstances than absolute peace. And I'd like to stress again that Ukraine has held several very good elections, even while it was still in conflict in, um, in the Donbass. I also must say that Ukraine has extremely advanced uh, public opinion polling. We see again and again that whatever results come out of these representative samples is exactly what happens in reality. So there's actually, this is a very developed environment, not like some of the other we worked in. So when Ukrainians say to the tune of 70 something percent, they're not happy with electoral, with reform in general, the speed of reform in general, it really is so. There's a very, very advanced system and some of my colleagues here, NDI, IRI, others, are a part of that complex of opinion polling. So we have a pretty good idea about where Ukraine is on issues. And we know, as I said, that 65 to 80% of Ukrainians do not want elections during war. And I think that's a reasonably informed opinion of theirs. As to the issue of um, the use of internet voting as a part solution to this, it is of course a very tempting thing to think about. It's a very difficult issue to discuss. I mean, we should take another hour on that. But the reality of it is that internet voting at the national level is only used by really by two nations at this moment. Um, and it still has significant problems in implementation. So the systems that we see for internet voting, even when great effort it made, still fail as in its functionality. And recently, Western Australia had elections with uh, some of the most advanced internet voting systems. The election completely failed and had to be rerun. I mean, you can only imagine what that would mean to an election in Ukraine. And let's remember that Western Australia does not have a war going on with the largest cyber villain in the world, right? With an industrial complex of hackers that will do everything they can 
to destroy the system. So firstly, functionality-wise, there's still some way to go on internet voting. Secondly, vulnerability of all sorts, all the way from technical vulnerabilities through to vulnerabilities to disinformation, meaning that Russia will do everything it can to undermine the use of internet voting and to sow doubt about the process and the outcomes of this. This is very important. And thirdly, which opinion polling also clearly shows in Ukraine and across the world, people don't trust internet voting as a way in which to select the to distribute ultimate power. So the trust issue is still a very, very big issue. And even the Ministry of Digital Transformation, Minister Fedorov, who I have talked to repeatedly on this issue, acknowledges that within Ukraine society, there's still great doubt about whether internet voting would be a safe way in which to elect leaders. Now, Ukraine has done an amazing effort on DIA. They have accelerated e-government like no one else and under very difficult circumstances. There are other countries that have very good e-government, but DIA certainly has gotten a life of its own and they've been extremely good at promoting it in Ukraine and abroad. But still, the demography of people that sign up for DIA is still relatively young and there's not full implementation of DIA at this point. So not everybody is on it. It's a government-controlled system. It has been developed by elected officials who may themselves have political ambitions. And I, I have to say that I have great faith. I think the Minister Fedorov and his ministry have done amazing things, also in the battlefield. But when elections happen, often before the election, we see everyone agreeing that new technology is great. But for all elections, more than half, often 80 to 90% of candidates lose the election. What do they turn around and blame for their loss? Their lack of popularity? No. They find the weakest points they can attack, and what is, what is it? Often electronics, voting machines, internet voting, and so forth. So internet voting is extremely vulnerable to accusations by those that lost. And I assure you that Russia is aware of that and will do everything they can to fuel the fire. Uh, brick and mortar, paper election is much safer on that. And Ukraine has been very good <coughs> at conducting traditional elections. So I think, I personally think, and we have stated this together, by the way, we have a public statement against the use of internet voting from before the war. It's still 100% valid, that public statement. And it lays out the case on why it's difficult to use. Ukraine should not be the testing ground for technologies that still need to mature further, especially considering the difficult circumstances that there is and the enemy they fight against. So Peter, there were, you said there were there are two nations that have tried it and one failed in Australia. No, no. The other so no, no. I mean the two nations that are most uh, that have the most uh, um, advanced implementation of it at the highest level is Switzerland and Estonia, both of which we talk to ah. a lot. So IFAS has provided the ministry with an international advisory group of the top experts in the world to help the ministry think through the issue of internet voting, and we have specifically looked visited Switzerland and Estonia and looked at their examples. And those that are involved in both countries also caution Ukraine against a too rapid implementation. Implementing internet voting is a year-long process with lots of pilots that needs to happen with absolutely no official standing, just tests and so forth. And it'll take a lot of effort uh, to make that happen. By the way, the Ministry of Digital Transformation has told me that they are putting their internet project on hold because they're busy fighting the war. They are behind the army of drones. And if I could choose on any day whether the minister and the ministry would focus on the army of drones or on developing technology that other countries are not using, 
almost no countries within the EU uses internet voting, then I'd prefer that the ministry focuses on winning the war so that we have a democracy to, to, to have elections. Absolutely. Oh, you're, you're anything on that? Um, so uh, my, you know, uh, what I'm looking for when we are speaking about technologies in elections, first of all, we will open Pandora box because it will be one system which can be targeted by Russia or bad people, like, I don't know, maybe Iranian uh, ha <laughs> hackers yeah. or from China, uh, very well developed uh, in technologies people. And what will happen at the end? You know, we will lose a chance to have new elected bodies because the trust to this process and the results will be very low. It's Pandora box because now we have diversity of the process with polling station, ballots, logistical uh, processes and so on. And it's saving us. It's saving because nobody can target in, in one day all the system uh, on paper in 26,000 uh, of, uh, 26, of polling station. It's about diversity. Diversity is better than uh, to have one target, especially on this crucial period. Uh, Peter is right that we had to, uh, to think uh, on the future, but we need so many processes, pilots, and mini projects, micro projects for the future E process uh, in elections that we don't have a time now and hotspot it's about trust as usually just ask this question to ukrainian opposition no they will say no we will not vote for that we will fight against that because we don't have any power on the process we have our observers and members of electoral commissions on the ground what we will have at the end if uh, everyone will vote through their mobile phones Nobody can observe. We don't have a specialist which will be a part of the team and then which can uh, advise each of the steps with these codes and the processes. So we are not going to, to be a part of this process. Each in Ukraine from opposition side will say you like that. The problem is again that we can be a pilot for world because Estonia is very small. Sorry, I was observer in Estonia in 2007 when they had parliamentary election and they used electronic voting uh, national wild in the first time. But before they had many pilots. So, and the trust in Estonia to their government is very high. They didn't have experience of fraud. We had many experience with electoral fraud. Russia used electronic voting, so, so what? You know, it's uh, very uh, difficult to understand what's happening on this shadow box because we see what's happening outside, but inside it's a huge problem. That's why electronic voting uh, w and e-voting is not a solution for us now. Just imagine when you here have hotspot and this very hot stage of political discussions and debates between, uh, in between political parties and the question how this post-voting may looks like, who have a right to vote, how to register voters and so on, uh, was very, very well known for us too. Just imagine when you have these hot discussions, propose let's vote through form. I'm not sure that it will be acceptable for Americans. Let's not do pilots on Ukraine during wartime because it will be even worse at the end. Well, your question about civil yeah. war, I, I didn't observe that elections <laughs> for sure. 
but I believe that we uh, we have as a result of Second World War international law and practices and documents on universal uh, level which now form the practices, standards, and criteria for free and fair elections, for democracy, for human rights, and so on, before we didn't have it. So I believe it was a good point uh, for that uh, more than 200 years history development of democracy, but not now. We have a clear uh, like indicators what does it mean good elections in Ukraine. It's about constitution, it's about big book named electoral code, it's about Copenhagen standards, it's about Venice Commission, code of good practices, and nobody had it before Second World War. Let's be honest, we are doing level up after that uh, tragical history of the world, and elections what we have in on the 20th century, 24th century, are not the same as it was before. I heard that it was a problem here to have water bribery. I, I read about that from the history. I'm not sure it's okay for now. True? Uh, and it's not okay for, for my country too. Let's be honest that democracy is developing each year, each century, and not take into account just processes which looked like elections, but from the perspective of 21st century, it's not relevant to, to much. Ora, thank you. Thank because you very much. Because war was a norm for world on those days. So I am going to notice the, the, the time, and, uh, <coughs> and I'm looking forward to Damon's uh, uh, wrap-up here. Great conversation, a great set of questions, good answers on, on, those, on those questions. But Damon, as the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, it's, uh, we have IRI and NDI here and other elements of it. I'm very pleased that you can be here. Great to co-sponsor with you and over to you. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, I'll be very brief, but first of all, Peter, thank you for the expertise that you personally, that IFAS brings to this equation to level set around what we see records around the world. Olga for representing what is so critical here, the agency of Ukrainian civic groups, not just to wait for politicians and government to figure this out, but to lead on this issue. And you've got that track record of credibility behind it, Olga. And Bill, Ambassador Taylor, for your champion of US support for Ukraine's democracy over time. Really, thank you. I'm going to close just by, we heard Ambassador Markolova at the beginning remind us that let's not lose sight. This is what Ukraine's, Ukrainians are fighting for. So let's not get blinded by the reality right in front of us that Ukrainians are driven for freedom and democracy. Adriana said, coming from the front lines, that principles before politics. So we see civil society, we see politicians, we see diplomats, governments, international support groups agreeing. It's a mistake to think about this right now. We need to listen to you. We need to listen to that. Um, it's not a black and white issue. It's an important conversation to be had. There are some legitimate discussions and conversations about there, out there about this. At the same time, we also need to be prepared, be careful. There are those who do not believe that Ukraine should defeat Russia. There are those that don't support international support for Ukraine. And there are pretty sophisticated misinformation, Russian information campaigns that are looking for the weak points to leverage and cudgel against to undermine the support that is required. And this is potentially one of those issues. So it's important that we have an open, honest conversation. We face the reality of the issues, but we stay laser focused on what we hear uh, from Ukrainians that have sacrificed so much for democracy. I think we have seen Ukrainians demonstrate how far they will go 
to be able to determine their own future from an orange revolution to the Euromaidan uh, to what we see in, in the defense of freedom today. Um, I think your desire for, for democracy cannot be questioned. Um, we do have IRI and NDI with us, even in their own surveys. I think you've mentioned it. Um, sometimes it's over uh, 90%. Sometimes, depending on how you ask, over 60%. It's pretty clear that Ukrainians today feel that this is not the right step for democracy to have elections at this moment. Um, they recognize that this war is about the freedom so that you can have credible uh, democratic elections going forward. So I think it's important that we remain focused with you on how to support Ukrainian efforts to defeat Russia, um, but also recognizing that it is more than that. Um, that Ukrainians have had opportunities where they've missed historic windows of opportunity to continue to transform their country and half-hearted measures that follow those windows that have opened. And I think what we feel and see from so many NED partners, so many, so much touch the energy of civic society across Ukraine today, is that resolve not to miss this historic and painful window of opportunity to emerge from a painful war, but to emerge not only as a free nation, but to emerge as a much stronger democracy. In fact, to emerge, I would argue, as a moral democratic superpower because of the sacrifice Ukrainians have made. And so there is, in some degree, a singular focus on how to win, but it's also on how to win the peace. And that's what so many of our partners are doing right now, how to lay the foundation today so that Ukraine's victory comes out as a foundation for a much stronger democratic future. And that does include serious work and building consensus on what it means. How do you prepare for credible elections? What are lessons learned from other conflicts? How do you think about this as the war, if the war drags on, if it enters a different type of state? These are gonna be serious issues. But the point is no surprises. A surprise announcement from a government would be disastrous on this for the unity that is a purpose that's needed. But working to build consensus among civil society, political parties, those that would be candidates, the governments on when those conditions come together, when that makes sense, and gaining the backing of international democratic supporters who will have to help with the financing to execute this. So the endowment has been with Ukrainians in dark days. We started our support for Ukrainian civic life in 1989, before the independence of Ukraine. We've seen difficult dark days with our partners around the world. And we've seen how civil society has risen to the challenge. Our core institutes, others representing labor, business associations, independent groups, to work to safeguard their own freedom, to build the integrity of democratic processes, and really to push Ukraine to meet and start to exceed international democratic standards. So I think I would just close by saying many of us here in this room, certainly in the endowment family, we're gonna stand by your side as you figure this out, knowing that the most effective accountability mechanisms will be the empowerment of Ukrainian people to hold their own government, their own leaders to account. That's what you're actually fighting for. And we'll stand by your side and support you as you determine that pathway, as you lead the way. So thank you for being here for the conversation. Thank you for hosting us at USIP. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. It's great to be a co-sponsor. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you, Ned. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. Um, continue. Th these guys are not going anywhere. You've got questions for them uh, or for Damon Wilson as well. Thank you all very much for being here. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.